Robinson Crusoe, Part 8. This recording, copyright Candlelight Stories, Inc., available at candlelightstories.com. Narrated by Alessandro Chima. A Candlelight Stories audio production. The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner by Daniel Defoe I was sadly put to it for a scythe or a sickle to cut it down, and all I could do was make one as well as I could out of one of the broadswords or cutlasses which I saved among the arms out of the ship. However, as my crop was but small, I had no great difficulty to cut it down. In short, I reaped it my way, for I cut nothing off but the ears, and carried it away in a great basket which I had made, and so rubbed it out with my hands. And at the end of all my harvesting I found that out of my half-peck of seed I had near two bushels of rice, and above two bushels and a half of barley, that is to say, by my guess, for I had no measure at that time. However, this was a great encouragement to me, and I foresaw that in time it would please God to supply me with bread. And yet, here I was perplexed again, for I neither knew how to grind or make meal of my corn, or indeed how to clean it and part it, nor, if made into meal, how to make bread of it, and if how to make it, yet I knew not how to bake it, these things being added to my desire of having a good quantity for store and to secure a constant supply, I resolved not to taste any of this crop, but to preserve it all for seed against the next season, and in the meantime, to employ all my study and hours of working to accomplish this great work of providing myself with corn and bread. It might be truly said that now I worked for my bread. It is a little wonderful, and what I believe few people have thought much upon, namely, the strange multitude of little things necessary in the providing, producing, curing, dressing, making, and finishing this one article of bread. First, I had no plough to turn the earth, no spade or shovel to dig it. Well, this I conquered by making a wooden spade, as I observed before. But this did my work in but a wooden manner. And though it cost me a great many days to make it, yet, for want of iron, it not only wore out the sooner, but made my work the harder, and made it be performed much worse. However, this I bore with too, and was content to work it out with patience, and bear with the badness of the performance. When the corn was sowed, I had no harrow, but was forced to go over it myself, and drag a great heavy bough of a tree over it to scratch the earth, as it may be called, rather than rake or harrow it. When it was growing or grown, I have observed already how many things I wanted to fence it, secure it, mow or reap it, cure or carry it home, thresh, part it from the chaff, and save it. Then I wanted a mill to grind it, sieves to dress it, yeast and salt to make it into bread, and an oven to bake it in, and all these things I did without, as shall be observed. And yet the corn was an inestimable comfort and advantage to me too. But all this, as I said, made everything laborious and tedious to me, but that there was no help for, neither was my time so much lost to me, because I had divided it. A certain part of it was every day appointed to these works, and as I resolved to use none of the corn for bread till I had a greater quantity by me, I had the next six months to apply myself wholly by labor and invention to furnish myself with utensils proper for the performing all the operations necessary for the making the corn, when I had it, fit for my use. But first I was to prepare more land, for I had now seed enough to sow above an acre of ground. Before I did this, I had a week's work at least to make me a spade, which, when it was done, was a very sorry one indeed, and very heavy, and required double labor to work with it. 
However, I went through that and sowed my seeds in two large, flat pieces of ground as near my house as I could find them to my mind, and fenced them in with a good hedge, the stakes of which were all cut off that wood which I had set before, which I knew would grow, so that in one year's time I knew I should have a quick or living hedge that would want but little repair. This work was not so little as to take me up less than three months, because a great part of that time was in the wet season, when I could not go abroad. Within door, that is, when it rained, and I could not go out, I found employment on the following occasion, always observing that all the while I was at work, I diverted myself with talking to my parrot and teaching him to speak, and I quickly learnt him to know his own name, at least to speak it out pretty loud, Paul, which was the first word I ever heard spoken in the island by any mouth but my own. This, therefore, was not my work, but an assistant to my work. For now, as I said, I had a great employment upon my hands, as follows. I had long studied, by some means or other, to make myself some earthen vessels, which indeed I wanted sorely, but knew not where to come at them. However, considering the heat of the climate, I did not doubt, but if I could find out any such clay, I might botch up some such pot as might, being dried by the sun, be hard enough and strong enough to bear handling, and to hold anything that was dry and required to be kept so. And as this was necessary in preparing corn, meal, etc., which was the thing I was upon, I resolved to make some as large as I could, and fit only to stand like jars, to hold what should be put into them. It would make the reader pity me, or rather laugh at me, to tell how many awkward ways I took to raise this paste, what odd, misshapen, ugly things I made, how many of them fell in, and how many fell out, the clay not being stiff enough to bear its own weight how many cracked by the over-violent heat of the sun being set out too hastily, and how many fell to pieces, with only removing, as well before as after they were dried, and in a word, how, after having labored hard to find the clay, to dig it, to temper it, to bring it home, and to work it, I could not make above two large earthen ugly things, I cannot call them jars, in about two months' labor. However, as the sun baked these two very dry and hard, I lifted them very gently up, and set them down again in two greater wicker baskets, which I had made on purpose for them, that they might not break, and, as between the pot and the basket there was a little room to spare, I stuffed it full of the rice and barley straw, and these two pots being to stand always dry, I thought it would hold my dry corn and perhaps the meal when the corn was bruised. Though I miscarried so much in my design for large pots, yet I made several smaller things with better success, such as little round pots, flat dishes, pitchers, pipkins, and anything my hand turned to, and the heat of the sun baked them strangely hard. But all this would not answer my end, which was to get an earthen pot to hold what was liquid and bear the fire which none of these could do. It happened after some time, making a pretty large fire for cooking my meat, when I went to put it out after I had done with it, I found a broken piece of one of my earthenware vessels in the fire, burnt as hard as a stone and red as a tile. I was agreeably surprised to see it, and said to myself that certainly they might be made to burn whole if they would burn broken. This set me to study how to order my fire so as to make it burn me some pots. I had no notion of a kiln, such as the potters burn in, or of glazing them with lead, though I had some lead to do it with, but I placed three large pipkins and two or three pots in a pile one upon another, and placed my firewood all around it, with a great heap of embers under them. I plied the fire with fresh fuel round the outside and upon the top, till I saw the pots in the inside red-hot quite through, and observed that they did not crack at all, 
When I saw them clear red, I let them stand in that heat about five or six hours, till I found one of them, though it did not crack, did melt or run. For the sand, which was mixed with the clay, melted by the violence of the heat, and would have run into glass if I had gone on. So I slacked my fire gradually till the pots began to abate of the red color, and watching them all night, that I might not let the fire abate too fast, in the morning I had three very good, I will not say handsome, pipkins, and two other earthen pots as hard burnt as could be desired, and one of them perfectly glazed with the running of the sand. After this experiment, I need not say that I wanted no sort of earthenware for my use, but I must needs say as to the shapes of them. They were very indifferent, as any one may suppose, when I had no way of making them, but as the children make dirt pies, or as a woman would make pies that had never learnt to raise paste. No joy at a thing of so mean a nature was ever equal to mine, when I found I had made an earthen pot that would bear the fire and I had hardly patience to stay till they were cold, before I set one upon the fire again, with some water in it, to boil me some meat, which it did admirably well, and with a piece of kid I made some very good broth, though I wanted oatmeal and several other ingredients requisite to make it so good as I would have had it. My next concern was to get me a stone mortar to stamp or beat some corn in, for as to the mill there was no thought of arriving to that perfection of art with one pair of hands. To supply this want I was at a great loss, for of all the trades in the world I was as perfectly unqualified for a stone-cutter as for any whatever, neither had I any tools to go about it with. I spent many a day to find out a great stone big enough to cut hollow and make fit for a mortar, and could find none at all, except what was in the solid rock, and which I had no way to dig or cut out, nor indeed were the rocks in the island of hardness sufficient, but were all of a sandy, crumbling stone, which would neither bear the weight of a heavy pestle, nor would break the corn without filling it with sand. So, after a great deal of time lost in searching for a stone, I gave it over, and resolved to look out for a great block of hard wood, which I found indeed much easier, and getting one as big as I had strength to stir, I rounded it, and formed it on the outside with my axe and hatchet, and then, with the help of fire and infinite labor, made a hollow place in it, as the Indians in Brazil make their canoes. After this I made a great heavy pestle or beater of the wood called the ironwood, and this I prepared and laid by against I had my next crop of corn, when I proposed to myself to grind, or rather pound, my corn or meal to make my bread. My next difficulty was to make a sieve, to dress my meal and part it from the bran and the husk, without which I did not see it possible I could have any bread. This was a most difficult thing, so much as but to think on. For to be sure, I had nothing like the necessary things to make it with, I mean fine thin canvas or stuff, to sift the meal through. And here I was at a full stop for many months. Nor did I really know what to do. Linen I had none left but what was mere rags. I had goat's hair, but neither knew I how to weave or spin it. And had I known how, here were no tools to work it with. All the remedy that I found for this was, that at last I did remember, I had among the seamen's clothes, which were saved out of the ship, some neck-cloths of calico or muslin, and with some pieces of these I made three small sieves, but proper enough for the work, and thus I made shift for some years. How I did afterwards, I shall show in its place. The baking part was the next thing to be considered, and how I should make bread when I came to have corn, for first I had no yeast. As to that part, as there was no supplying the want, so I did not concern myself much about it. But for an oven, I was indeed in great pain. At length I found out an experiment for that also, which was this. 
I made some earthen vessels very broad, but not deep, that is to say about two feet diameter, and not above nine inches deep. These I burnt in the fire, as I had done the other, and laid them by. And when I wanted to bake, I made a great fire upon the hearth, which I had paved with some square tiles of my own making, and burning also, but I should not call them square. When the firewood was burnt pretty much into embers or live coals, I drew them forward upon this hearth, so as to cover it all over, and there I let them lie, till the hearth was very hot. Then sweeping away all the embers, I set down my loaf or loaves, and whelming down the earthen pot upon them, drew the embers all round the outside of the pot, to keep in and add to the heat. And thus, as well as in the best oven in the world, I baked my barley loaves, and became in a little time a pastry cook into the bargain, for I made myself several cakes of the rice and puddings. It need not be wondered at if all these things took me up most part of the third year of my abode here, for it is to be observed that in the intervals of these things I had my new harvest and husbandry to manage, for I reaped my corn in its season and carried it home as well as I could and laid it up in the ear in my large baskets till I had time to rub it out, for I had no floor to thrash it on or instrument to thrash it with. And now, indeed, my stock of corn increasing, I really wanted to build my barns bigger. I wanted a place to lay it up in, for the increase of the corn now yielded me so much that I had of the barley about twenty bushels, and of rice as much or more, insomuch that I now resolved to begin to use it freely, for my bread had been quite gone a great while. Also I resolved to see what quantity would be sufficient for me a whole year, and to sow but once a year. Upon the whole, I found that the forty bushels of barley and rice were much more than I could consume in a year, so I resolved to sow just the same quantity every year that I sowed the last, in hopes that such a quantity would fully provide me with bread. All the while these things were doing, you may be sure my thoughts ran many times upon the prospect of land which I had seen from the other side of the island, and I was not without secret wishes that I was on shore there, fancying that seeing the mainland and an inhabited country I might find some way or other to convey myself farther and perhaps at last find some means of escape. But all this while I made no allowance for the dangers of such a condition, and how I might fall into the hands of savages, and perhaps such as I might have reason to think far worse than the lions and tigers of Africa, that if I once came into their power, I should run a hazard more than a thousand to one of being killed, and perhaps of being eaten, for I had heard that the people of the Caribbean coast were cannibals or men-eaters, and I knew by the latitude that I could not be far off from that shore. All these things, I say, which I ought to have considered well of, and I did cast up in my thoughts afterwards, yet took none of my apprehensions at first, and my head ran mightily upon the thoughts of getting over to that shore. Now I wished for my boy Zuri, and the longboat with the shoulder of mutton sail, with which I sailed above a thousand miles on the coast of Africa, but this was in vain. Then I thought I would go and look on our ship's boat, which, as I have said, was blown up upon the shore a great way in the storm when we were first cast away. She lay almost where she did at first, but not quite, and was turned by the force of the waves and the winds, almost bottom upwards, against the high bridge of a beachy rough sand, but no water about her as before. Had I had hands to have refitted her and have launched her into the water, the boat would have done well enough, and I might have gone back into the Brazils with her easily enough but I might have easily foreseen that I could no more turn her and set her upright upon her bottom than I could remove the island. However, I went to the wood and cut levers and rollers and brought them to the boat, resolving to try what I could do, suggesting to myself that if I could but turn her down, 
I might easily repair the damage she had received, and she would be a very good boat, and I might go to sea in her very easily. I spared no pains, indeed, in this piece of fruitless toil, and spent, I think, three or four weeks about it. At last, finding it impossible to heave it up with my little strength, I fell to digging away the sand to undermine it, and so to make it fall down, setting pieces of wood to thrust and guide it right in the fall. But when I had done this, I was unable to stir it up again or to get under it, much less to move it forwards towards the water, so I was forced to give it over. And yet, though I gave over hopes of the boat, my desire to venture over for the main increased rather than decreased, as the means for it seemed impossible. This at length set me upon thinking, whether it was not possible to make myself a canoe or a periagua, such as the natives of those climates make, even without tools, or as I might say without hands, namely of the trunk of a great tree, this I not only thought possible, but easy, and pleased myself extremely with my thoughts of making it, and with my having much more convenience for it than any of the negroes or Indians, but not at all considering the particular inconveniences which I lay under more than the Indians did, namely, want of hands, to move it into the water when it was made, a difficulty much harder for me to surmount than all the consequences of want of tools could be to them. But my thoughts were so intent upon my voyage over the sea in it that I never once considered how I should get it off the land, and it was really in its own nature more easy for me to guide it over forty-five miles of sea than above forty-five fathom of land where it lay to set it afloat in the water. I went to work upon this boat the most like a fool that ever man did and who had any of his senses awake. I pleased myself with the design, without determining whether I was ever able to undertake it, not but that the difficulty of launching my boat came often into my head, but I put a stop to my own inquiries into it by this foolish answer which I gave myself. Let me first make it. I will warrant I will find some way or other to get it along when it is done. This was a most preposterous method. But the eagerness of my fancy prevailed, and to work I went, and felled a cedar tree. I question much whether Solomon ever had such a one for the building the temple of Jerusalem. It was five feet, ten inches diameter at the lower part, next the stump, and four feet eleven inches diameter at the end of twenty-two feet, after which it lessened for a while and then parted into branches. It was not without infinite labor that I felled this tree. I was twenty days hacking and hewing at it at the bottom. I was fourteen more, getting the branches and limbs, and the vast spreading head of it cut off, which I hacked and hewed through with my axe and hatchet, with inexpressible labor. After this it cost me a month to shape it and dub it to a proportion and to something like the bottom of a boat, that it might swim upright as it ought. It cost me near three months more to clear the inside and work it out so as to make an exact boat of it. This I did, indeed, without fire, by mere mallet and chisel, and by the dint of hard labor, till I had brought it to be a very handsome periagua, and big enough to have carried six and twenty men, and consequently big enough to have carried me and all my cargo. When I had gone through this work, I was extremely delighted with it. The boat was really much bigger than I ever saw a canoe or a periagua that was made of one tree in my life. Many a weary stroke it had cost, you may be sure, for there remained nothing but to get it into the water. And had I gotten it into the water, I made no question, but I should have begun the maddest voyage and the most unlikely to be performed that ever was undertaken. But all my devices to get it into the water failed me, though they cost infinite labor too. 
It lay about one hundred yards from the water, and not more. But the first inconvenience was, it was uphill towards the creek. Well, to take away this discouragement, I resolved to dig into the surface of the earth, and so make a declivity. This I began, and it cost me a prodigious deal of pains. But who grudge pains that have their deliverance in view? But when this was worked through, and this difficulty managed, it was still much at one, for I could no more stir the canoe than I could the other boat. Then I measured the distance of ground, and resolved to cut a dock, or canal, to bring the water up to the canoe, seeing I could not bring the canoe down to the water. Well, I began this work, and when I began to enter into it, and calculated how deep it was to be dug, how broad, how the stuff to be thrown out, I found that by the number of hands I had, being none but my own, it must have been ten or twelve years before I should have gone through with it. For the shore lay high, so that at the upper end it must have been at least twenty feet deep. So at length, though with great reluctancy, I gave this attempt over also. This grieved me heartily, and now I saw, though too late, the folly of beginning a work before we count the cost, and before we judge rightly of our own strength to go through with it. In the middle of this work, I finished my fourth year in this place, and kept my anniversary with the same devotion and with as much comfort as ever before, for by a constant study and serious application of the word of God, and by the assistance of His grace, I gained a different knowledge from what I had before. I entertained different notions of things. I looked now upon the world as a thing remote, which I had nothing to do with, no expectation from, and indeed no desires about. In a word, I had nothing indeed to do with it, nor was ever like to have. So I thought it looked, as we may perhaps look upon it hereafter, namely, as a place I had lived in, but was come out of it. And well might I say, as Father Abraham to dives, between me and thee, there is a great gulf fixed. In the first place, I was removed from all the wickedness of the world here. I had neither the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, or the pride of life. I had nothing to covet, for I had all I was now capable of enjoying. I was lord of the manor, or, if I pleased, I might call myself king, or emperor over the whole country, which I had possession of. There were no rivals, I had no competitor, none to dispute sovereignty or command with me. I might have raised shiploadings of corn, but I had no use for it. So I let as little grow as I thought enough for my occasion. I had tortoises or turtles enough, but now and then one was as much as I could put to any use. I had timber enough to have built a fleet of ships. I had grapes enough to have made wine, or to have cured into raisins, to have loaded that fleet when they had been built. I had, as I hinted before, a parcel of money as well, gold as silver, about thirty-six pounds sterling. Alas! There the nasty, sorry, useless stuff lay. I had no manner of business with it, and I often thought with myself that I would have given a handful of it for a gross of tobacco pipes, or for a hand-mill to grind my corn. Nay, I would have given it all for sixpenny worth of turnip and carrot seed out of England, or for a handful of peas and beans and a bottle of ink. I had now been here so long that many things which I brought on shore for my help were either quite gone or very much wasted and near spent. My ink, as I observed, had been gone for some time, all but a very little, which I eked out with water a little and a little, till it was so pale it scarce left any appearance of black upon the paper. 
As long as it lasted, I made use of it to minute down the days of the month on which any remarkable thing happened to me, and first, by casting up times past, I remembered that there was a strange concurrence of days in the various providences which befell me, and which, if I had been superstitiously inclined to observe days as fatal or fortunate, I might have had reason to have looked upon with a great deal of curiosity. First, I had observed that the same day that I broke away from my father and my friends, and ran away to Hull in order to go to sea, the same day afterwards I was taken by the Sally man of war, and made a slave. The same day of the year that I escaped out of the wreck of that ship in Yarmouth Roads, that same day of the year afterwards I made my escape from Salay in the boat. The same day of the year I was born on, namely the 30th of September, the same day I had my life so miraculously saved twenty-six years after when I was cast on shore in this island, so that my wicked life and solitary life both began on a day. The next thing, to my ink being wasted, was that of my bread. I mean the biscuit which I brought out of the ship. This I had husbanded to the last degree, allowing myself but one cake of bread a day for above a year, and yet I was quite without bread for near a year before I got any corn of my own, and great reason I had to be thankful that I had any at all, and getting it being, as has been already observed, next to miraculous. My clothes, too, began to decay mightily. As to linen, I had had none a good while except some checkered shirts which I found in the chests of the other seamen, and which I carefully preserved, because many times I could bear no other clothes on but a shirt, and it was a very great help to me that I had, among all the men's clothes of the ship, almost three dozen of shirts. There were also several thick watch-coats of the seamen's, which were left indeed, but they were too hot to wear. And though it is true that the weather was so violent hot that there was no need of clothes, yet I could not go quite naked, no, though I had been inclined to it, which I was not, nor could I abide the thoughts of it, though I was all alone. One reason why I could not go quite naked was I could not bear the heat of the sun so well when quite naked, as with some clothes on, nay, the very heat frequently blistered my skin, whereas with a shirt on, the air itself made some motion, and whistling under the shirt was twofold cooler than without it. No more could I ever bring myself to go out in the heat of the sun without a cap or hat. The heat of the sun beating with such violence as it does in that place would give me the headache presently, by darting so directly on my head without a cap or hat on, so that I could not bear it, whereas if I put on my hat it would presently go away. Upon these views I began to consider about putting the few rags I had, which I called clothes, into some order. I had worn out all the waistcoats I had, and my business was now to try if I could not make jackets out of the great watch-coats which I had by me, and with such other materials as I had. So I set to work a tailoring, or rather, indeed, a botching, for I made most piteous work of it. However, I made shift to make two or three waistcoats, which I hoped would serve me a great while. As for breeches or drawers, I made but very sorry shift, indeed, till afterwards. I have mentioned that I saved the skins of all the creatures that I killed, I mean four-footed ones, and I had hung them up stretched out with sticks in the sun, by which means some of them were so dry and hard that they were fit for little, but others, it seems, were very useful. The first thing I made of these was a great cap for my head, with the hair on the outside to shoot off the rain, and this I performed so well that after this I made a suit of clothes wholly of those skins, that is to say, a waistcoat and breeches open at the knees, and both loose. 
for they were rather wanted to keep me cool than to keep me warm. I must not omit to acknowledge that they were wretchedly made, for if I was a bad carpenter, I was a worse tailor. However, they were such as I made very good shift with, and when I was abroad, if it happened to rain, the hair of the waistcoat and cap being outmost, I was kept very dry. Candlelight Stories Audio Production.